For all the science to satisfy your gut, Deerland brings you Digestible, a podcast breaking down the trends of the nutraceuticals industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Digestible, a Deerland probiotics and enzymes podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Digestible as we explore some broader probiotic industry thought leadership. As we maneuver our conversation today, make sure that you're heading to our website, Deerland.com. Again, Deerland.com. For more information on our various products, solutions, and services, but also for some more Deerland content, including episodes of the show and some articles, videos, blogs, and more. You can also subscribe to Digestible on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations, as well as notifications when we drop new ones. So on today's episode of the show, We're digging into one of the most pressing challenges in the probiotics industry today, one that compounds some of the most essential aspects of developing and choosing the right probiotic for your needs. And that challenge would be effective industry education. So the reason we're wanting to explore this today is because with barriers to access relevant information and with difficulties communicating the entire value of a probiotic investment, Educating healthcare and food and beverage industry professionals on how to make this kind of informed decision around probiotics and enzymes makes for a complex task. There's a lot of moving pieces. So with our conversation, we're going to sit down with Deerland's head of education and innovation to understand how these education challenges manifest day to day for the industry and how to maneuver innovations in probiotics to stay one step ahead of that educational gap. So here to give us insights today is Mr. Stephen Williams. He's Director of Innovation and Education at Deerland. Stephen, great to have you on. How are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, real pleasure having you on. Thank you again for joining us. I know you uh, joined the Deerland team recently, so we're excited to uh, usher in your tenure here at the company by bringing you on the podcast and discussing a very relevant topic. Uh, Before we get into the core discussion today, uh, give us a quick elevator pitch that tracks your background in innovation and uh, education in this broader space. Uh, That way we can better understand the kind of perspectives you're going to be bringing to the conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my academic background, so I started in the biology education space. I've always been passionate about educating and, and the empowerment that can come from that. Um, and then transitioned into uh, research and uh, did a lot of probiotic research, actually, and natural product research. Um, most of my career was spent in research and development um, over in DuPont in their, their probiotic division. And um, then uh, got to um, have some experience um, doing some more innovation in, in other spaces. And now I'm here at Deerland tying it all together. Love that. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to pulling from all of that experience for our conversation today. So, Stephen, let's go ahead and get into it. I want to start general and get your overview of the situation that we're unpacking today. But would you say that educating industry professionals in these tangential industries impacted by probiotics and enzymes, uh, has educating those industry professionals on how to maneuver the probiotics landscape always been a difficult task? 
Or is this something that has been made more challenging as the industry has grown in prominence over the last several years? Uh, give us your analysis there and the why. Yeah, so I'd say that there's always been challenges uh, associated with educating uh, tangential industries and, and the professionals there on probiotics and enzymes. But that's not to say that those challenges haven't shifted and changed over the last uh, several years. The way I like to think of it is uh, two decades ago, uh, the probiotic space was kind of like a, a frontier homestead. Um, so there was still education that was needed to, to navigate and thrive in that homestead. A lot was uh, very basic. It was helping people be aware of it. Um, it was a small space. But now with all the growth in the probiotic and enzyme industry and the other associated ingredients, it's now become a thriving metropolis. So there's different challenges associated with that than there was in the, the early education um, in the probiotic space. And then just to give some more timeliness to this dynamic, what have been some of the recent developments in probiotics and enzymes uh, development, production, et cetera, that have added on to these education growing pains for the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So, so carrying on the analogy a little bit in, in a metropolis, it's become much more crowded of a space. So um, early on, there was only a few probiotics that were on the market. Um, now there um, has been a lot of expansion in the offerings of probiotics and enzymes. So a lot more to choose from. Um, and I think one of the challenges um, for uh, professionals in these tangential industries is, is uh, figuring out the differentiators between these ingredients. Um, you also have a lot of proliferation in, in published research around these ingredients. So we're getting more and more data, and this seems to be a common thread in a lot of industries. More and more offerings, more options, more data. It's a lot to sift through to, to pull out the relevant and important information. So thanks for laying out this groundwork. What I want to do now is better define the core obstacles that uh, create roadblocks for empowering education in the probiotics and enzyme space. So uh, let's start by just sort of defining what these core obstacles are. And then if you also could give us the extra context of what makes these obstacles so resilient and why we've seen these continue to be a challenge, regardless of the size of the industry. Uh, go ahead and break that down for us. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think some of these core obstacles are obstacles related to uh, tangential industry professionals or also to consumers. The first one that I, I would say is being able to uh, find relevant information. Um, and to distinguish the, the relevant and valid information from uh, marketing hype or, or media hype um, to really get down to, to the core, uh, pure information um, that gives the guidance needed to make good decisions. Um, the second one is even if you can identify the good information, the good sources, the second challenge you have is accessing that information. Um, so you can imagine as, as an industry professional or a consumer, you've, um, you've found some research 
and you go to the research site and you realize that not all scientific research is uh, open access or publicly available. And so uh, getting access to some of that information can be expensive. Um, and it's, it's hard to get the research, the raw research, um, to be able to um, consume it. So then third, I would say, is once you do get access to the research, it's interpreting and understanding that research. As, as you well know, Daniel, and I think our, our listeners know as well, uh, most scientific research is not uh, written um, as the primary audience being the layperson um, or somebody from a, a different area of expertise. Most scientific research is, is written um, with the primary audience being other researchers who are experts in that particular field. So it, it can at times um, be a little bit dry, it can have a lot of lingo in it, and it can be uh, difficult to interpret. So I think those, those are three of the main obstacles. Um, in summary, again, it would be the ability to, to find and distinguish uh, valid sources um, from those that, that may um, be a little bit more hype and, and not have what you need. Um, the second would be accessing that. And then the third would be interpreting and understanding that. I think the reason that those are so resilient in the market, despite the size of the market, is, is, this, is this is just a general challenge with information on scientific topics to people that want to use that information. Uh, there, there often is either a lot of marketing hype around science, or there's a lot of deep, pure uh, scientific information on it, and there's not as much uh, bridging that gap. And, and that's why I think it's, it's pretty resilient in the market. All right, so now what I want to do is just expand on those three points. Again, uh, those would be defined as finding the necessary data, then accessing the data, and then making sense of and implementing the data and, you know, broader research, right? So let's start with that first one, right? Finding the data and research in the first place. What would you say needs to change about how the industry approaches putting together its resources to make finding that accurate data and research about particular probiotics and enzymes ingredients a little easier? What, again, needs to change about how we put those resources together in your view and why? Yeah, and to clarify on that, I would say that there there are some things that can change within the framework that we've been given and other things that can't change within the framework that we've been given. Um, because of certain regulation, just publishing on a website all of the scientific data is not always uh, an option um, because we have to be careful of, of, of claims that we're um, implying for some of these products. Um, on the other side, what we can do within the framework that we've been given is when we have meetings with providers of these products to have real frank and open discussions, to, to, be, to not hold all the information close to, close to the vest, but to be open and transparent about the information that we do have and also about the information that we don't have. And to have those discussions, I think the more um, those one-on-one -on -one discussions happen and uh, questions are um, posed and answered, the more 
um, we can access that information and everybody can benefit from it. So uh, really in summary, I'd say to, to have these one-on-one -on -one discussions where we can have um, a deep conversation about the, the data that we do have. So then for those metrics that can't be changed, right? The fact that there are regulations and general standards that dictate what can't and can't be openly and publicly published for all to read. Uh, how do you maneuver that aspect then, which is a little more rigid, uh, so that you can still find those resources? Would you say all of that is just down to having more open inter and intra industry conversations? Or are there any other strategies for maneuvering that finding in the research of the research uh, that you think is worthwhile? Yeah, so so I'm I'm a big fan of publishing to open access journals. Um, that's not always possible, but I, I think as as much as possible in in this industry, that's helpful. So that said, that that information is available to uh, those that are are willing to go looking for it. I would agree that having those um, open inter industry conversations um, is really a, a key point then there, there's also this collaboration on, on what you're going to communicate to the, the end consumer. Um, and uh, most people in the industry understand that there's uh, certain structure function claims that can be made um, without making any claims that, that go outside of the, the regulation that's available. So, so it's a little bit of a balancing act. I think it is um, open publishing as much as possible. It's a real open conversation um, between the industries and the partners that are, are bringing these to consumers. And then within the framework that we have been given, being as open to the consumer as possible. Um, you can mention that there have been studies um, on uh, certain ingredients and then just being very clear about the structure and function claims without uh, stepping over those lines. The second metric that you brought up was uh, once the data or the research on necessary probiotics and enzymes ingredients is found, then accessing that data and research uh, and accessing it holistically becomes another set of challenges, right? So for some more clarity there, are these barriers to accessing said pure data or research, uh, are, are these intra-company issues, right? So siloed to individual orgs and sort of uh, representative of the actions of individual orgs and sort of how they structure trying to access that information? Or is this more of a structural challenge for the whole industry to overcome? Break down that dynamic for us and why it's a challenge. I, I would say that it's a little bit of both. Anybody who, who's been in a large organization understands that sometimes you get silos of information and uh, information in one uh, department may not be uh, communicated to information in another department. Um, and they may even, um, it, for functional uh, purposes, speak a different language, right? So sometimes um, the, the common uh, concern is that the uh, science and research department and uh, marketing and sales department don't speak the same language. In overcoming that, obviously, open communication, meetings, and and having um, interpretation, learning learning how to interact as as departments is really important. And and I think mo 
most um, organizations in this industry understand that and, and are sharing, sharing internally the information that they get. Um, the second issue is, is the broader one. Um, there, there is a lot that is available through open access journals. There are some that it's paid access. Um, and then there is some data and information that is uh, kept proprietary to individual companies. What I would say is, is it's helpful to focus on what we do have um, and not necessarily on, on what we don't have um, because some of those things may not change. But I, I do think the more open and transparent we are with what we do have um, and with each other, the more that fosters a broader sense of wanting to share uh, the information that we do have to make it more accessible to to um, uh, other companies and to um, our customers. The last metric that you brought up for us, Stephen, um, is basically once this data is found and once it is accessed, this is a challenge that is probably relatable to any organization, but making sense of the data and then applying the research in actionable ways that play into a broader business plan and strategy, that is another crop of challenges. So let's break that one down. Uh, obviously, handling and strategizing around this kind of data and research takes mass coordination across various internal departments and external partners, a lot of moving pieces. So how does Deerland approach this dynamic and what learning lessons can an industry take away from how Deerland has maximized maneuvering these challenges? Yeah, I think one of the things that um, Deerland is doing that I, I think is very, very helpful is that they're prioritizing the education. So we have a wonderful science and, and technology department. We have a wonderful marketing and sales department. Um, but we're also prioritizing education. Um, so we're, we're trying to, to merge both of those together and provide uh, consumable um, information to um, our customers and, and, and even to their customers. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of ways to do that. I think that prioritization of um, interpreting information and making it consumable is important for any any um, organization that has uh, this communication aspect. And to, to utilize multiple approaches to communicate that information on an easily digestible, excuse the pun, but an easily digestible level through podcasts, through website, through white papers, um, press releases. There, there's um, even uh, videos and online training courses. There's a lot of different ways to uh, present consumable information that is, is not overly hyped, but is meant to educate and empower in a way that um, people with multiple learning styles can appreciate it and consume it. I'm really curious to see how those educational initiatives at Deerland continue to set some high bars for the rest of the industry. We'll probably want to do a follow-up episode on that with you here to see how that pans out in the next several months, maybe towards the end of the year. But uh, until then, what I want to do for the last leg of this conversation is highlight the other aspect of your role. You're obviously director of education at Deerland. You're also director of innovation at Deerland. Uh, so break down some of the larger trends we're seeing in the industry today. What are some of the innovation trends that you're most excited about in the probiotics and enzymes industry and why? And then we'll connect some dots. 
Yeah. So there, there's a lot of innovation going on in the industry with a lot of brilliant people um, here at Deerland and, and also in other places. Um, a couple that are of particular interest to me, um, one would be the uh, functional areas of interest for these ingredients that are beyond the gut. Um, most people are familiar with the benefits of probiotics for uh, general digestive health, um, but there's been a lot of innovation and research around benefits for other functional areas. Um, we're, we're seeing um, a lot of research around the gut-brain barrier and how uh, these ingredients may be able to affect mood um, and even sleep. Um, we're seeing um, some resurgence in, in interest around the gut-skin barrier um, and all these different implications for this broader ecology and use of these ingredients. And I, I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there um, for people that are looking for um, uh, health in other areas beyond just digestion, which is important. Um, but that is affected by the gut and by probiotics and enzymes and postbiotics and, and prebiotics and all these other ingredients that can have these broader systemic um, implications. The, the second place of, of innovation that I'm particularly excited about would be um, these next generation products. Um, so you, you've heard a lot about next generation probiotics. So this is an emphasis um, going beyond what the typical canonical uh, probiotic is. Um, so there's been a lot of research around lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. Most people are familiar with those, but there's been a lot of looking into new um, innovation, innovative uh, probiotics. So uh, commensal gut bacteria, um, you're also seeing an interest in, in soil-based probiotics and spore formers like uh, the, the Bacillus subtilis. And this goes beyond probiotics. We're looking for next-generation prebiotics that are not necessarily um, oligosaccharides. Um, Deerland, for example, uh, offers a, a phage-based um, prebiotic, and there's other research looking into uh, next-generation prebiotics. Um, and, and this is in, in each of these categories. People are looking for these next generation, new and innovative solutions uh, in these categories. So now to intersect that, like I said, with uh, the previous points we've been having on the conversation today, how do you see these larger innovation trends in the space uh, impact the educational approaches for the industry at large? but also from Deerland to its customers. How do those dynamics uh, intersect with how the industry is evolving? So I think the education needed um, in a crowded and, and growing space, as was mentioned before, is different than the education needed in a emerging area. So I think in, in these innovations, um, there's going to be a lot more need in education to just make people aware of uh, these innovations. Um, there's going to be a lot of questions and education needed around safety and how they work and how they're different than current offerings. And so in, in some instances, it's almost two educational strategies. You have your, your frontier homestead strategy, and then you have your metropolis strategy. And, and I think for these areas 
where everything is new and, and the research is up and coming, that you're going to see more of those frontier strategies and making people aware, making people um, understand um, how they work and a general comfort level and, and safety and things around those areas. All right, Stephen, we're hitting the end of our show. So one last question for you before we wrap up. But in summary, if we have to take everything we've chatted about and turn it into some actionable strategies, what tips would you give companies to maneuver these um, very active innovations in the field today in order to stay one step ahead of that education gap, right? How should they view this field of innovation decide some actionable educational strategies and do so in a way that uh, can, to some degree, maybe predict or at least just not get thrown off by any of those very active evolutions to the space. Break down your view there and why. Yeah, so um, I think there's a lot of approaches there. The, the one that I would say that I think anybody can do is to align yourself with the the companies and the researchers and the organizations that are at the forefront of these fields. And that's going to help you stay abreast of the information. Once you do that, I think the second thing that you want to look for is you want to look for um, transparency and honesty in those, those groups. Uh, you want to make sure that the education you're receiving is from the, the experts in this field that are really trailblazing there, but also that it's reputable, that it's um, people that are willing to admit what they don't know yet, um, what they do know, and what current limitations are. And I think if, if you can um, align yourself with somebody that you can trust um, and that is at the forefront of these areas, that it's going to help you stay at the forefront of those areas as well and be able to take off when those new innovation trends also take off. All right, Stephen Williams, thank you so much for your insights today on the show. It's really been a pleasure getting to know you as a professional and as a director now at Deerland. And then more importantly, intersecting those insights with trends in education and innovation in the broader industry. So again, we've been chatting with Stephen Williams, Director of Innovation and Education at Deerland. And Stephen, if folks want to find out more about some of your work, some of Deerland's work in this space, or just get in touch, how can they do so? Yeah. So um, looking at Deerland, obviously we have our, our Deerland website, um, and then they can reach out to me as well. Um, I, I love um, chatting about what we're doing at Deerland and uh, explaining more of what we know and what we don't know and, and where we're going. Perfect. Stephen, thanks again for your time. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. It was a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Digestible, a Deerland probiotics and enzymes podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure you're heading to our website, Deerland.com. Again, Deerland.com. And make sure you're subscribing to Digestible on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Digestible.